Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Marcus Redeker, author of The Fearless Benjamin Lay. Marcus Redeker, author of The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. How did you find out about him? I first encountered Benjamin Lay when I was working on a different book, a book I wrote with Peter Linebaugh entitled The Many-Headed Hydra, Sailors, Slaves, and Commoners in the Hidden History of the Revolutionary Atlantic, because Benjamin Lay was writing against slavery very early in the 1730s, and I thought this was really unusual but as I learned more about him, I decided at that time that he really deserved a book of his own. So we didn't put him in that book, and now, 20 years later, it's finally happened. What made him a revolutionary abolitionist? Benjamin Lay was someone who not only was one of the first to call for the emancipation of enslaved Africans all around the world, that in itself is extremely important, and that is the cause for which he is best known, he actually went further than that. He advocated a way of living, an entire way of living, that was extremely unusual for his day. For example, in the 1730s, he was a vegetarian. He was a champion of animal rights. He was an opponent of the death penalty. He would not consume any commodity produced by slave labor. That would be tobacco or sugar or coffee. Uh, and in fact, as far as we know, he was the first person ever to boycott slave-produced commodities. He believed that to live a virtuous life, you had to separate yourself from all kinds of oppression. And toward that end, he made his own clothes, he grew his own food, he lived in a cave, uh, so that he would not be actually contributing through complicity to the oppression of any of God's creatures, whether human or animal. Did he have followers? He did. He had a lot of uh, fellow Quakers. He was a Quaker after all. That's an important part of his story. Uh, and a lot of people were drawn to him. He was controversial, and I should say he was a polarizing figure among the Quakers. Some Quakers didn't like him at all for his, shall we say, dramatic and symbolic protests against slavery. But there were a lot of people who admired him very much. He knew that a lot of people agreed with him on slavery, but he felt that they were just afraid to speak out. And he was never afraid to speak out. You say in here that Benjamin Rush, who was uh, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, said that there was a time when the name of this celebrated Christian philosopher was familiar to every man, woman, and nearly every child in Pennsylvania. So why isn't he famous now? Well, let's, let's go back to his own lifetime. Benjamin Lay was born in 1682. He was born in England. He worked as a sailor for many years and saw the world. He lived in Barbados 
uh, in the West Indies for 18 months, which at that time was the premier slave society in the world. So he saw the horrors of slavery up close. And then he went back to England and he and his wife Sarah Smith uh, emigrated to Philadelphia in 1732. And when Benjamin got there, he discovered that in fact, um, a lot of Quakers owned slaves. This was tremendously upsetting to him. He thought this would destroy the Quaker faith, that it would destroy Christianity, that it would destroy in America. So he did everything he could to try to persuade people to give up a practice that he regarded as evil. So, so Lay was someone who, by virtue of extravagant protests, shall I give you an example? Sure. In 1738, Benjamin went to a, the annual uh, meeting, the big meeting of Quakers, the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting in Burlington, New Jersey. He wore a military uniform with a sword at his waist. This was unusual because Quakers were pacifists. He also took uh, an animal bladder and filled it with bright red pokeberry juice and then tucked it inside one of those books that has a secret compartment, closed the book, threw an overcoat over the uniform, the sword, and the book, and then went into this meeting, which was full of those weighty Quakers, the ones who owned slaves. And since there's no formal minister for a Quaker meeting, people speak as the spirit moves them. And so Benjamin stands up and says, slaveholding is the greatest sin in the world. Then he throws off the coat and people see the uniform and this collective gasp fills the meeting hall. Then he raises the book above his head and pulls the sword and says, God will take vengeance against those who oppress their fellow creatures, referring to slavery. He runs the sword through the book, the blood comes gushing down his arm, and then he sprinkles it on the heads of slave owners. So this, to go back to your original question, is how he became one of the best known people in Pennsylvania because people told stories, endlessly repeated stories, about these things he did uh, to protest against the institution of slavery. He grew up in England, uh, grew up a Quaker. Yes, actually, it's, it's quite interesting. He was a third generation Quaker. He, uh, his, his grandparents had converted to Quakerism very early in 1655. Uh, Quakerism was born amid the English Revolution in the 1640s and 1650s. His parents were both Quakers, and then he himself uh, became a Quaker. He was born in Essex, uh, not far from the city of Colchester, which is uh, northeast of London. You say, uh, you describe some very, fairly gruesome executions of Quakers at the time. Was, was that all behind him by the time he came along? It, uh, yeah, the, Quakers? Quakers were a very radical group in their origins and were very much opposed to divine right monarchy. And uh, of course, King Charles I was executed by Oliver Cromwell and the parliamentary forces in 1649. Uh, when King Charles II came back from exile to resume the throne, his father's throne, he was very angry at all of the people who had opposed his father. 
So a lot of persecution rained down on the heads of Quakers. Uh, their property was, uh, was distrained, as they say, taken over by the state. Many Quakers went to prison for very long periods of time. Now that was basically over by the time Benjamin Lay was born in 1682, but nonetheless, he reached back to that early radical variant of Quakerism as the thing that inspired him the most. You write in here about some guerrilla theater. You refer to it as what, uh, what Quakers used to partake. Quakers did some dramatic things. I mean, Quakers are so respectable these days. Uh, I, I'm always eager to remind people how wild they were in the 1650s. Uh, one Quaker was known to put burning brimstone on his head and run through Westminster screaming, repent, repent, the end is near. Uh, Quakers also had a, a practice of going naked for a sign, meaning run, running through the streets naked, to try to cause people to, to sort of shock people and make them think about proper religion. Because uh, Quakerism is a very particular kind of radical Protestantism, uh, and Quakers acted this out in all kinds of outrageous ways. Were there many Quakers in England at the time? There were. The Quakers were the most successful of a group of radicals. There were levelers and diggers and ranters and seekers. They were all radical Protestants. They were all very interested in democracy, in democratizing both faith and political practice. Uh, and the Quakers not only survived the English Revolution, they grew and attracted more and more numbers and became really quite an important part of British and American history. Now you say he was a dwarf. Yes, he was. Can you describe him physically? I can. Benjamin Lay, we, we know from several uh, primary sources, people who knew him, was a little bit over four feet tall. He also had a curvature of the thoracic vertebrae, meaning he was a hunchback. Uh, he nonetheless must have been quite physically able and strong because to be able to work as a sailor, that was a very demanding physical job. He did that job for about 10 years. Uh, he also was known his entire life to walk everywhere he went. He didn't want to exploit horses. He thought that was wrong to use horses for human uh, means and ends. So Benjamin was a, an unusual figure. He was ridiculed for being a little person. He was mocked. Um, he believed that he was mocked partly because of his ideas, his unusual ideas about slavery and everything else. But the important thing was uh, he could never be cowed. He would always stand up and fight. And he would always, and this is crucial to understanding him, he believed, one of the core beliefs of his life was you must speak truth to power. Powerful people are the ones that you most need to speak the truth to. So therefore, those wealthy Quakers who not only owned slaves but dominated the Pennsylvania legislature in the middle of the 18th century, those are the people that he most wanted to face down and tell them that what they were doing was wrong. Well, was he able to do mainstream things I mean, as, a, as a dwarf? Was he were job and education opportunities available to him? Well, you know, he came from a family of modest means in this little town called Copford in Essex. He got a little bit of education, not very much. Uh, my guess is that he learned to read during his years at sea as a sailor. Uh, oftentimes, a literate sailor uh, during slack moments on the ship when the 
the wind was driving the vessel forward, they would, sailors would sit down and one man would teach another how to read or how to read better. So Benjamin is kind of an autodidact. He was a self-taught person and partly for that reason, he always loved books. He was really a man of the book. He, the only material good, the only thing that he really needed money to buy were books. He just loved books. He wrote a book. He took an interest in book. He loved talking about books. So he was, even though he was not formally educated, he was quite an intellectual and quite an original thinker. You said he, he left quite a library when he died. He did. He left a library of uh, more than 200 volumes. Now that doesn't sound like very much today, but in the early 18th century, that would have been one of the biggest libraries that anybody uh, had. And he was especially known for having all of the published writings of the great early Quaker leaders. Now I must tell you, Brian, I had a moment of great good luck in the course of my research when I discovered that in a really quite unknown archive, the Germantown Historical Society, there is a copy of a book that was in Benjamin Lay's library. And I went there, I got the book with great excitement. Uh, I opened the first page, uh, turned back the hardcover, and it says in a bold hand, this book belongs to Benjamin Lay. This was a series of sermons given by a radical minister in the 1650s, a man named William Dell. And what was really most remarkable of all is that throughout the book, Benjamin has written marginal comments in his own hand, so you can actually see what he thought about everything that this uh, minister was saying back during the English Revolution. Was he exposed to slavery when he lived in England? Probably not, although there, there were some enslaved people in England uh, he might have seen enslaved people in the Port of London because ships would frequently bring slaves back there. But we know that his primary uh, encounter with slavery happened uh, in 1718 when he and his new wife, Sarah Smith, uh, Sarah Lay, she was also a little person. She was also an abolitionist. They moved to Barbados. and Where, for people who don't know? Yeah, Barbados is in the West Indies. Uh, it's, uh, it was at the time a tremendously wealthy sugar colony. And Benjamin saw there up close and personal precisely what a slave society looked like. Uh, Barbados was a tremendously violent place. He saw people starving to death. He and his wife Sarah had opened a little shop on the waterfront. Uh, mostly to serve sailors and artisans who worked there. But the enslaved would also come into their shop because on Sundays they could travel to the, to the port city, Bridgetown, and he saw people stagger in and, and literally collapse on the floor because they were hungry. They were being starved to death. He saw people being tortured. He saw people being executed. And, and what I think was an especially moving thing for him was that one enslaved man he knew uh, was really quite viciously beaten every Monday morning by his master. And on a Sunday night, that man took his own life, saying to Benjamin, he said, I'll bear it no more. So I think these experiences of seeing the extreme violence of slavery had a tremendous impact on Benjamin. Like you might say it was traumatic. I don't think he ever really got over it. Uh, but it moved his heart. 
And, and while he was in Barbados, he and Sarah began to feed the hungry. They invited uh, enslaved people to come to their homes. These grew to very large numbers of people, uh, throngs of people outside their home. This caught the attention of the local slave owners who didn't like it because Benjamin would, of course, speak against slavery during these meetings. Uh, and they eventually pressured him and Sarah uh, to leave the island. As it happened, they had already decided that they wanted to leave, that they could not live in a place of such great violence. And so they went back to England in 1720. Did he take up the anti-slavery movement when he was in England then? You know, there really isn't, is not, I'm sure that it was part of his life, but there's just nothing in the written record to show that. Uh, it, it is clear that he was involved in Quaker meetings and was very critical of certain things in these Quaker meetings. He had a very clear idea of how he thought everything should go. Yeah, you, you sound like he was pretty disruptive. Very disruptive. They're very disruptive. See, he was uh, an antinomian radical. And let me explain that word, antinomian. An antinomian is basically a, a heretic, a, a radical religious person who thinks that because of a direct connection to God, they are above the law. In other words, the law that rich men make for their own protection is not something that a truly godly person should obey. You should do what's right in the eyes of God, in the eyes of your fellow Quakers. So Benjamin believed that because of this direct connection that he had to God, that he could, could and should tell everybody when he thought they were doing something wrong that the quality of their preaching wasn't good enough, for example. It wasn't enough from the heart. He believed very much that you had to speak from the heart, deep in the spirit. This was a Quaker belief, intimations of the spirit. And when he saw people that he thought were too concerned with worldly goods, too concerned with wealth, this really bothered him. He thought those things killed the spirit. So he would speak out in these meetings and he would get in trouble. He also uh, described one scene where he uh, was in the, is it the balcony where the women were sitting and he objected to the women not being seated with the rest of them? Yeah, Quaker uh, meeting houses separate men and women. Uh, Benjamin believed that men and women uh, should be equal. This is one of his many uh, commitments to equality. This is a, an important idea to him. And one day he staged a protest by going and sitting in the women's gallery kind of transgressing the boundary, the social boundary that the Quakers had uh, drawn. He was physically removed uh, by force, you know, by pacifists, uh, and, they, and, and, the, and the Quaker meeting uh, in question appointed several burly men to act as a kind of police force to keep him from going back into the women's gallery in the future. But he still considered himself part of the Quaker? He did. He, he was a very devoted Quaker. And even when he was critical of Quaker slave owning, uh, uh, any number of things, he believed that the, the version of Quakerism that, that he embraced, that older, more radical Quakerism, he thought this was the salvation of all humanity, that this was the truly the best uh, set of beliefs in the world. Uh, he tried to live those beliefs. He tried to live the beliefs of equality. Uh, he was critical of those who couldn't follow that same example. Uh, and he was therefore, as you say, uh, always disruptive. Did he have, have any friends or allies, people who agreed with him? He with did. The Quaker yes, he did. He did. Uh, he, he, we have some letters that he wrote to friends 
Uh, I don't think he would have befriended anybody who didn't agree with him on the issue of slavery. So that's one thing. And he also says in this book that he wrote, he wrote a book published uh, by Benjamin Franklin in 1738, and, and we may want to talk about that because this book was controversial. It really it was it detailed Benjamin Lay's struggles against the Quaker hierarchy, the most the wealthiest and most powerful Quakers. Um, Benjamin Franklin took some risks in publishing that, but in that book, Benjamin said that I know a lot of people agree with me. I know they feel as I do about slavery. He said they're just afraid of these powerful people. So part of his job was to make friends build alliances, and get people to speak out against slavery and all these other issues. How'd that work out in England? Well, it, as it happens, the, the real anti-slavery movement that developed among Quakers, and this is really important because Quakers were the first group to make it illegal to, to own a slave and be a member of their group. Now, this happened years after Benjamin Lay died. But what's fascinating about this, if we look at the broader history of the abolition movement, the American Quakers were really crucial to it, much more the American Quakers than the British Quakers. Partly that's because slavery was much more pronounced in America. And when Benjamin uh, and Sarah first came to Philadelphia, they saw slaves all around. About one in every nine or 10 people in Philadelphia was enslaved in that time. And of course, this triggered all the feelings he had in Barbados. Uh, so, but the resistance movement against slavery was, uh, well, first of all, it originates among the enslaved themselves, okay, so let's say that. But, but the Quakers were their strongest allies, in, and specifically the Quakers who settled in America. You write in your book how when he moved to Philadelphia, it, he had to get permission from the Quaker church in, in, in England to join? Yes. This is, a, this is an important thing in the history of Quakerism as an organization. Some of the early radicals among the Quakers, people like James Naylor and John Perrault, were considered by George Fox, who is regarded as the main founder of Quakerism, uh, really to be too radical and to be too disruptive and that they were somehow harming the Quaker faith. So George Fox, in the 1660s and 1670s, implemented a whole set of reforms designed to control these radicals, to rein them in. And one of the things that he put into place was to say that if you're gonna travel from one Quaker meeting to another, you must have a certificate of proper behavior so that the new community could know that about you and accept you. This was not easy for Benjamin because he was always in trouble with his own congregation, whichever one he was with. So it was not easy for him to get one of these uh, certificates, but he did finally do it, and that's when he emigrated to Philadelphia in 1732. Did you ever find any uh, crossing of the roads between uh, Benjamin Lay and William Penn? You know, only in the sense that I know he read William Penn. Uh, he talks about William Penn's writings in his own book. Uh, he did have some respect for Penn. I'm not sure if he knew that William Penn was a slave owner. William Penn owned 12 slaves. In England? Actually, on his uh, land in America, where he actually spent very little time. But nonetheless, he was the owner. So I don't know how Benjamin Lay would have felt about this, if, if he had known or if he did know. 
But he did always uh, want to emphasize that William Penn and the early Quakers were the only group who negotiated a fair treaty with the native peoples in their region and did not take land by military force. Uh, actually, the great French philosopher Voltaire wrote years later that that Quaker treaty may be the only treaty in history with Native Americans that wasn't broken. So what attracted uh, Benjamin Lay to Philadelphia? Well, it was the second largest Quaker community in the world after London, and it was a place where Quakers were in power, right? Uh, William Penn had gotten this huge land grant uh, from uh, King Charles II in exchange for money that the Penn family had loaned to the king and the English state. Uh, so William Penn set up a Quaker colony. There were huge migrations of Quakers in the 1680s and 1690s, and Quakers dominated local society and local politics. So I think one of the things that Benjamin Lay really looked forward to was being in a place where his fellow Quakers were really in charge to run things as they should be run, to run a truly godly and moral society. So imagine his shock when he gets here and he discovers slavery. That is not uh, uh, his idea of a godly or moral society. So this activated him and really caused him to fight back. Now you refer to him in your book as a lifelong troublemaker. So when he arrived with the uh, Quaker community in Philadelphia, did they know what they were getting in him? They didn't. They didn't really know what, who he was. Uh, they immediately started corresponding with Quaker meetings in England where he had been a member, and they pretty quickly found out that he had already been disowned twice by the Quakers, kicked out for doing things that were disruptive. Now, he had been reinstated, which is how he was able to get that certificate. But there was a whole controversy about that. So people found out, but they didn't really have to wait for a correspondence that took months to find out who they were dealing with because from the very first, Benjamin Lay is denouncing slavery everywhere he sees it. So he is a man who would never hold back. And I think uh, the Philadelphia Quakers were a bit shocked by this man who had joined their congregation. What were some of his tactics? Well, he... he you know, he was a quite serious student of ancient philosophy. He studied the philosophy of Greece and Rome, and he was especially influenced by a group of philosophers called the Cynics, the Cynic philosophers and a man named Diogenes in particular. And Diogenes, uh, I mean, the, sort of the, one of the root ideas of Cynic philosophy is this thing I mentioned earlier, you must always speak truth to power and you must perform your philosophical ideas in public. You must live them. You must act them out. So this is something that Benjamin Lay very much took to heart. And there was a Quaker background to this too, for the radical Quakers in the 1650s, who also performed this extravagant guerrilla theater. But he would do things basically to try to jar people out of their complacency. I'll give you another example. In 1742, Benjamin went into the public market of Philadelphia, a big place teeming with people, and he sets up a little table and he puts on it some very fine china teacups and saucers. And then he stands there and he just starts speaking like a, a stump speaker, you know. Uh, 
and people start gathering around and he starts denouncing the practice of tea drinking. And he says, tea is made by people who live far away in India and they're very badly treated. And the sugar, the sugar cube that you drop into your teacup, that is made with the blood of Africans and Barbados. And I have seen it with my own eyes. And so everybody is listening and then Benjamin suddenly takes a wooden mallet out of his uh, shirt and starts smashing the teacups. Now this is really expensive, fine china. It belonged to his wife who is now deceased. I'm not sure he would have done this while she was still alive. But he starts smashing the teacups and everybody starts screaming, the, the crowd that's assembled saying, stop, what are you doing? What are you doing? Give that china to me and he'd smash another one and smash another one to prove that we must reject these kinds of consumption that are based on the oppression of other people. Finally, uh, his, this, this action he's taking against fine private property caused a riot. Some people knocked him over. One young man uh, got Benjamin up on his shoulders and ran away so that someone else could rescue the unbroken part of the china. But he had made his point. So he did things like this frequently, so much so that he once attended a Quaker meeting some miles away from where he lived in Abington, Pennsylvania. He walked in, sat down on the Quaker meeting. He, he wrote, he said, I had hardly sat there for a minute than two people were picking me up and removing me from the, the worship. And he said, I hadn't even done anything yet. But his reputation had preceded him. What did he do for a living? He did several things. He was, early in his life, he was a shepherd. Uh, Essex is a uh, textile region, so sheep farming was very important. He uh, went away to sea for 10 years. He was a sailor. He was a glove maker. He was apprenticed to this by his father, but it was a, he didn't really like glove making. You're working with dead animal skins all the time, making gloves or, uh, and the like. Uh, he left that as soon as he could, and when he arrived in Philadelphia, he was a bookseller. He would sell books, usually at the uh, local uh, printing press. Now, some of the people who he took on would have been very prominent Quakers. The, why didn't, did, was he ever in danger, or was, in, was he ever arrested, or, or expelled? He, he, actually was, he actually was arrested back in England. Uh, for uh, a piece of guerrilla theater he performed. Uh, Quakers and other radical Protestants were very opposed to the Church of England, which they thought was too much like the Catholic Church. There was a very strong anti-Catholic feeling among radical Protestants at that time. So Benjamin went into a local church in Colchester, a Church of England, and disrupted the services, which caused him to be thrown in jail. Uh, he was never arrested by his fellow Quakers in in or around Philadelphia, although they, they did appoint people to keep an eye on him. But I guess uh, it is important to say that, for example, one of his main enemies was a man named John Kinsey. John Kinsey was the pinnacle of Quaker power uh, in the New World. He was the clerk of the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, that's the biggest Quaker meeting, and he was the speaker of the Pennsylvania legislature. He was the uh, the Chief Justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. 
He was the head of the Pennsylvania Loan Office that loaned money. So you're talking about a person who had tremendous uh, economic power, tremendous political power, tremendous religious power, and Benjamin Lay took him on. Now it was Kinsey finally who wrote uh, a letter published in several newspapers in Philadelphia saying Benjamin Lay is not a member of our religious community. So that was kind of a final disownment. Uh, but Benjamin Lay never backtracked. He never gave up. Uh, and even though it, was, it kind of forced him into a bit of a, a life of exile, living in his cave, he continued to attend Quaker worship meetings. He couldn't go to the business meetings anymore. That's what disownment meant. You can't participate in the business meetings. But, and at those worship meetings, he would stand up and denounce slavery. He, they couldn't shut him up. Was there evidence that he moved the ball on definitely, slavery in his lifetime? Definitely. Uh, he arrived in 1732, and for the next 20 years, he was by far the most outspoken voice against slavery. In the early 1750s, a new group of Quaker leaders came to the fore, uh, especially Anthony Benizet and John Woolman, both of whom Lay had influenced quite considerably, and that's the point at which the movement towards abolishing slavery within the Quaker order accelerates. So Lay was the person who was kind of preparing the way for that, changing hearts and minds before they finally got to the point when that older leadership John Kinsey and those wealthy Quakers, they began to step aside, and when the next generation came to power, they had already been influenced by Benjamin Lay, and they were ready to make this change. What kind of relationship did he have with Benjamin Franklin? It's an interesting one, because everyone has described them as friends, and uh, I'm not completely sure they were friends, because Franklin was a slave owner. He always owned a few slaves. I don't know for sure what Benjamin Lay knew about that, but we do know that in 1738, when Benjamin had written this book called All Slave Keepers That Keep the Innocent in Bondage Apostates, meaning you're not a real Quaker if you're owning slaves, he carries, Benjamin Lay carries this big jumble of papers. He's written this in his cave, by the way, by candlelight. He takes this to Benjamin Franklin and he says, uh, I want you to publish this and I'll pay you to publish it. And Benjamin Franklin looks at this and, and you know, Benjamin Lay as a, uh, a man who was not formally educated, his book is unusual. There's a lot of stream of consciousness stuff in there. It's full of uh, fascinating things. It's got some autobiography in it. It's got uh, biblical exegesis on slavery, and it's got this kind of searing account of how he's been persecuted by these wealthy Quakers. Uh, and so Benjamin Franklin says, what am I supposed to do with this? This, this? this manuscript's kind of a mess. And Benjamin Lay reportedly said, well, print the pages in any order you like. So Benjamin Franklin did that to his credit, but when you see the cover page of the book, the title page, it was customary in the 18th century at the bottom of the page for the printer to say, <clears throat> to give the place of publication, the year of publication, and then to add, in this case it would have been published by Benjamin Franklin Printer. So if you look at the cover page of Benjamin Lay's book, it says Philadelphia, 1737, and that's it. Franklin did not put his name 
on this book because he knew that a lot of these wealthy Quakers were going to be furious and that that might cost him business as a printer. But to Franklin's credit, later in life, uh, actually in the 1780s, he bragged about having uh, published Benjamin Lay's book. It was a little too hot, a little too controversial for him to associate himself with it, with it in 1738, but he does uh, later in life want to take credit. So that's, that's one part of the relationship. The other part is that we have this remarkable portrait of Benjamin Lay, a painted portrait. We know, uh, I was able to discover in the course of research, that Benjamin Franklin uh, and his wife Deborah commissioned a local artist, a man named William Williams, to paint this portrait of Benjamin Lay. It was probably painted in the year or so before Benjamin Lay died. Actually, it was Deborah who took the lead on this because she knew that Benjamin Franklin had great admiration for Benjamin Lay, so she decided to get a painting and to give it to her husband as a gift. Did Lay pose for it? I don't think he did because Benjamin Lay, like all early Quakers, thought that portraiture was nothing but vanity and they would never want to sit for a portrait. So what I think happened was the painter had seen Benjamin Lay around town, knew what he looked like, so he kind of painted him from, from life, but Benjamin Lay, I'm quite sure, would never have actually sat for a portrait because that was just sinful as far as he was concerned. But it is this remarkable thing that's come down to us, this remarkable piece of evidence of what he looked like. Uh, I think the clothes that they painted him as wearing are all wrong, uh, but it, it is a remarkable document, and there is a, a story behind its rediscovery. Uh, in 1977, uh, an antiques dealer, two antiques dealers, Ed Hild and Pat Bell, found a painting, they really didn't know what it was, in a box of junk. Uh, I think they bought it for $4. They took photographs of it. It was in really terrible condition and began to circulate these. And, and they, one of the people that they approached was a curator at the Winter Tour Museum in Delaware who said, this can't be. This painting of Benjamin Lay has been lost for all the, because there were prints made based on it. And on the print it said, based on a painting by uh, W. Williams. So the painting was known, but nobody had ever seen it, at least nobody for you know, a couple hundred years. So uh, it turns out that that was indeed the original portrait. Uh, great care was taken in restoring it. Uh, and now it is uh, part of the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. Now you said that the, the prints that were made from the portrait were pretty popular at the time. They were popular. Who would have wanted one? Well, anybody who was interested in the cause of anti-slavery. And it turns out that movement was growing. So by the time you get to the 1780s and 1790s, you have a Pennsylvania Abolition Society. Uh, Benjamin Rush, the signer of the Declaration of Independence that you mentioned, he was quite a committed abolitionist. He's the person who actually said, you can see this engraving of Benjamin Lay in the homes of people. Now, I've got to believe those were abolitionists and that they saw him as an ancestor of their movement. Did, did he live to see any of that? He, he did, but just barely after fighting what was really a pretty lonely battle for, for 41 years. He actually became an abolitionist in 1718 when he was in Barbados. He fought this battle 
up until his death in 1759, about a year before he died, uh, a Quaker friend came to him uh, with news. He said, the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting has just announced that any Quaker who participates in the slave trade can be disowned. Now, this was the first big step the Quakers had taken. And Benjamin, when he got this news, it was said that he fell quiet and finally said, praise God, I can now die in peace. Because he knew that this was the beginning of the end, that there would be a step from this prohibition to the next prohibition to the next prohibition, <clears throat> excuse me, and finally in 1776, Quakers now made it uh, technically illegal to own a slave uh, and remain a member of their faith community. So it took a long time, even among the Quakers. The, the first Quaker protests against slavery were in 1688. The final abolition wasn't until 1776. It took almost a century for this to happen, but Benjamin Lay played an important part and he did get to see the first big step, and that, of course, gave him great satisfaction. You mentioned his wife. Uh, was she as zealous on the slavery issue as he was? Was she, she as involved? You know, there, there really is so much less documentation about Sarah Lay, so we, we don't really know. One thing we know is that in all the stories passed down about her, it was said that she was just as committed to her husband as her husband to the cause of anti-slavery but her methods were different. She was not confrontational. Benjamin was always ready to fight. Sarah Lay, on the other hand, was not only uh, never disowned, she was a well-respected member of the Quaker community, and in fact, she was a traveling minister. You had to have a special dispensation to represent your own Quaker community to other Quaker communities. Um, she unfortunately died. She predeceased him by 24 years. She died in 1735. Um, he had a, an unusually long life. He lived to the age of 77 and died in 1759. But I, I, I wish we knew more about Sarah Lay. No children? No children. I did uh, work with a Quaker genealogist who is an expert in all of the Quaker records, and we did uh, determined definitively that there were no children. Were you able to find his book, to read it, to, to yes. write this book? Yes, this book is, uh, uh, is in uh, many libraries throughout Pennsylvania. There are also more recent editions of it. It has been republished. Uh, so your uh, viewers out there can go to the local library, I would imagine, and get Benjamin Lay's book and read for themselves what this man so far ahead of his time uh, actually had to say. What's it like to read it? It's not easy because Benjamin, as, as a person who was not really formally educated, uh, he, he didn't obey the usual conventions of how one writes a book. Uh, he, it, part of it reads like a diary. He'll like give a date and say, this morning while I was working in my garden, I pondered the horrors of slavery. And then he'll go on and talk about biblical verse and maybe include a story of something that happened to him in Barbados. Um, but yes, you can see it. Uh, it's hard going, it's full of digressions. And at the end, Benjamin uh, actually apologizes to the reader. 
He says, uh, I know that there are some things about this book that are not always exactly right, but what would you expect of a poor common sailor? You said he lived in a cave for a while? He lived in two different caves, one of which we're pretty sure has been recently rediscovered. Uh, not far from the Quaker Meeting House in Abington, Pennsylvania, uh, two local Quakers there uh, began to search and found a place that fits the surviving evidence about its location. Uh, Benjamin wrote that there was a, a brook that came nearby. There still is a brook near there. So we are uh, talking about getting an archaeologist to go and dig around that cave and see what kinds of uh, artifacts we might find of his habitation and use of it. Was it an actual cave, like underground or in the side of a mountain? It's, it's basically a cave that was created by cracks in a rock formation. And there's evidence that Benjamin actually built onto the front of the cave a structure, kind of a wooden structure with evergreen as a, a, a roof. So he built a kind of anteroom that, that gave him additional space. Uh, but apparently the cave was quite big because he had his library in there. He also had a spindle for spinning. Uh, and he thought this was just a great place for solitude and reflection. It doesn't sound like a good place to store books. It doesn't, and I'm sure he had to bring them out and put them in the sunshine to keep the mold from taking over. Uh, but I don't doubt that he loved his books so much that he took very good care of them. They also say that when he's in his cave, he was visited by, is it Thomas Penn? And, and uh, Benjamin Franklin Benjamin also. Franklin. You see, uh, Benjamin Lay was known as a brilliant conversationalist. And partly he was just a, such a good debater that people would seek out his company just to listen to what he would have to say. Because he was very learned, he would talk about philosophy, history, theology. He, had, you know, he, he loved his books. Um, and so gentlemen would actually come calling at his cave and he would feed them fruits and vegetables, right? No meat, didn't eat meat, but he would feed them fruits and vegetables and he was reported to have said, I know this is not actually what you eat at home, but it's very good food and you're welcome to eat it with me. You say he excelled in wit and public exchanges. It sounds like he was a cranky guy and wit doesn't seem like a word you would associate with him. Well. He could be humorous. He could be humorous. He did call himself uh, Little Benjamin, who was always in trouble. Uh, but his wit was of the cutting type. Uh, there is a story of a, of a man who wanted to have a little fun, so to speak, with Benjamin Lay in front of a big crowd. So uh, he comes up and, and asks him a question. With a, it was a group of men traveling through the countryside. And, uh, and he, he asks uh, Benjamin Lay several questions, and Benjamin Lay sees that he's playing a game, right? So Benjamin Lay sort of slices him down to size. The man uses all this kind of uh, florid, aristocratic rhetoric, saying, I am your humble servant. And Benjamin Lay says, are you truly my servant? And he says, yes, yes, of course I'm your servant. And Benjamin Lay says, well, in that case, I think you'd better clean my shoes. And everybody bursts into laughter, right? Laughing at the man who's playing this game and Lay has kind of put him in his place. So he was a, he was a formidable figure 
very articulate, and you took him on in debate at your own risk. When you were writing this book, was it hard to come up with enough material? Well, there were three great sources of evidence. One was his book itself, which is just a treasure trove. Secondly, there were a lot of stories about him. Benjamin Rush and Roberts Vox, another Quaker who wrote a second uh, uh, biography of Lay, went out and gathered stories among older Quakers. When Benjamin Lay died, some Quakers began to write into the newspaper and tell stories. So, and this is, of course, this, these are the stories by which he was so well known. But then there's another major source of evidence, which is this. Quakers were very good record keepers. And every time Benjamin got kicked out of a meeting, somebody had to explain why. So you get these really interesting descriptions of his challenging, you know, well-to-do ministers. So putting these three different kinds of evidence together, it really ended up being quite a lot to work with. What number book is this for you? This is number seven. Is there a general focus of history that you look at? Yes, I write what's called history from below. By that, by that I mean history of the people who were often left out of the history books. Uh, I write about uh, sailors. I write about enslaved Africans. I write about indentured servants. Uh, I wrote a book about the Amistad Rebellion, subject that Steven Spielberg made a film about, but I told the story from the point of view of the Africans who captured the ship and emancipated themselves. So the kind of history I write is, uh, is really about those who have been left out, and Benjamin Lay is a very good example of that because despite his enormous impact in the 18th century uh, in generating an abolition movement, he was almost completely forgotten in the late 19th and 20th century. Yeah, I want to ask about that because, um, let's see, you say here that um, one of the reasons, um, See if I can find this. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the reasons he's unknown is because he has long been considered deformed in both body and mind, a little person, and as a man, thought eccentric at best and more commonly deranged or insane. He was ridiculed and dismissed in his own day and in subsequent histories. So he, his his prominence fell off when, as anti-slavery grew, his prominence. No, his his prom the, the, Here's the way you would graph his prominence. As the anti-slavery movement grows, Benjamin Lay's reputation grows with it because there are a lot of abolitionists who reach back to him and say, look, our ideas are very old, and here is an, an ancestor of our movement, a very honorable person. So you have people like uh, Lydia Maria Child and Benjamin Lunday, very important abolitionists of the 1830s, who were writing new biographies of Benjamin Lay for the abolition movement. After abolition is essentially successful, after emancipation in 1863, there is a very conservative cultural turn in the United States, and the history of abolitionism is a kind of push to the side. They were seen as dangerous fanatics. So that's the period when the forgetting took place. Um, and I think, I think now actually is a very good time to bring Benjamin Lay back. You said he, he left money to have his body cremated when he died. He wanted to do that. Now that sounds like a normal practice to us today because cremation is a, a very well accepted practice, but that wasn't true in the 1740s and 50s, certainly wasn't true among Quakers, wasn't true among religious people. They associated cremation with paganism, especially with ancient Greece. 
So when Benjamin told a friend that what he really wanted was to have his body uh, uh, burned to ashes and have the ashes, this is revealing, have the ashes spread over the sea. I think this was a, a kind of going back to his time as a sailor and how important that was to him. Um, everybody was horrified when he said that and, and nobody wanted to do it. And apparently he never mentioned it again. Is his grave somewhere known? Yes, Benjamin Lay was buried in the Abington Quaker burial ground. Uh, his wife Sarah was buried there 24 years before he died. She was buried as a member, but he was not. He, there are actually many non-Quakers who were buried there, including uh, African Americans who didn't have any other place to be buried. So the spiritual equality of the Quakers meant that they were welcoming to others. So Benjamin is buried there. Um, I've, I've, I've gotten to know quite well some of the Abington Quakers, and I'm very pleased to say that there is a new grave marker that will be unveiled uh, next month that will show the place. See, Benjamin and Sarah were both buried in an unmarked grave. All of the early Quakers were buried in unmarked graves. Uh, the Quakers did not believe in fancy tombstones because they felt those, those would reflect class divisions and wealthy people would get fancy tombstones and poor people wouldn't have any tombstones. So they, they basically had this leveling idea about tombstones. But now a grave marker is gonna be put up saying uh, that this is the place where the bodies of Benjamin and Sarah lay uh, lie, very near the, the Quaker meeting house. You say in your book there was an effort underway to get him reinstated into the Abington meeting. Uh, why was that even controversial? Well, it was, con it yeah. It, it, here's an unusual fact about Benjamin Lay. He was so radical that he has the power, almost 300 years later, to still, after all that time, make people feel a little nervous. So there are always issues about Benjamin Lay and the fact that he was disowned, right? He was disowned. So some Quakers think, well, he was disowned. He's no longer part of our faith. And we assume that he was disowned for good reasons. Well, it turns out that the, the disownments in America had everything to do with his anti-slavery protests. Uh, and I think there are a number of Quakers who think that the elders who disowned him were the ones who were in the wrong, not Benjamin Lay. And I'm very happy to report that the Abington Quakers and the North London Quakers, another place where Benjamin uh, was disowned, have now re-embraced him. Now, they can't formally readmit him because they have no means for readmitting the dead. They don't know for sure if he would want to be readmitted. I'm quite sure he would have wanted to be readmitted. But what they did instead is something quite beautiful. They said, uh, we think of Benjamin Lay as a friend of the truth. In other words, his ministry against slavery was true, and those who opposed him were wrong. And then they say, we affirm uh, our connection to his spirit. So this is really a major rehabilitation. You refer to him in the introduction as you say he is a radical for our time. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that Benjamin Lay was someone who was opposed to all kinds of oppression. He was way ahead of his time in being uh, race conscious. He was gender conscious. He was class conscious. 
and he was environmentally conscious. This is a quite unusual thing. He, he, uh, he combined a set of attitudes that most people, I think, in today's world would not have considered possible until the 1970s, that someone could really integrate those different kinds of uh, ideas. Um, his notion that we must think carefully about what we consume is a really modern idea. Uh, in saying to you that the sugar cube you drop into your teacup is made with the blood of enslaved Africans in Barbados, in some ways he is the forefather of, a, of the movement today against sweatshops in third world countries in which you say, look at those beautiful Nike sneakers, but who made them and under what conditions? So in some ways his ideas, uh, you might put it this way, we're just now catching up to Benjamin Lay these many centuries later. So when he died, for a guy who lived in a cave and didn't have a lot of visible means of support, he left quite an estate. He did, and uh, th this I'm convinced is probably money he saved as a sailor, probably money he saved as a glover, probably money he saved with his little shop in Barbados, a little bit of money he made selling books. But see, the thing was, he never spent any money. He made his own clothes. And by the way, he wouldn't make his clothes out of wool because he thought shearing a sheep was too violent. So he would spin flax and he would make his clothes out of you know, linen, tow linen. Uh, he grew all the food to feed himself. So basically you had a man who had a little money, but he had no expenses. He lived in a cave. He didn't need to buy clothes. He didn't need to buy food. The only thing he wanted to buy was books. And at the end of his life, he had a, a sum of money, some of which he gave to poor children at the end. If you could talk to him, what would you ask him about? I, I have had a, a tremendous fascination with how a how his mind worked. In other words, what I would want to do is to ask him questions about how he arrived at such a radical set of ideas. And I've given my best answer in this book, that it's partly that he was a sailor, it's partly that he had uh, this experience in Barbados, it's the core of radical Quakerism, it's some ideas from ancient philosophy, but I would love to talk to him about how he arrived at this revolutionary abolitionist position. We've been speaking with Marcus Redeker. He is the author of this book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, The Quaker Dwarf Who Became the First Revolutionary Abolitionist. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.